The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, turning your Bibles to John 15, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through chapter 16, uh, verse 4, just the first part of verse 4. But uh, let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for the privilege and joy of gathering in your name. It's all because of Jesus who paid the price for our sins. It's all because of you, Father, in choosing to love us and give us to your Son. It's all because of the Holy Spirit who has sovereignly caused us to be born again so that we might respond with new hearts that love Jesus and new eyes that see him as glorious. God, in perfect unity, you have saved us. And we give you the praise and thanks. And now we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word, open our eyes to the truths here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, John 15, 26. We'll read to the first sentence of verse 4, or that paragraph. At least in my Bible, there's a paragraph there in chapter 16. Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. A year after facing persecution for the eighth time, 90-year-old Jatya is prepared to suffer yet again. Jatya is eager to share the evidence of his faithful evangelism with visitors. The frail yet energetic man lives in southern India in a village heavily populated with paid informants for the RSS, which is a national volunteer organization that has more than 5 million members, which also functions to intimidate and even force Christians to return to their nation's Hindu roots. One of Jatya's most prized possessions is a manila packets stuffed with photos and newspaper articles recounting the eight times he has been beaten for sharing the gospel in his village. It all started in 1992 when Jatya refused to sign a document promising to stop evangelizing. Police officers responded to Jatya's stubbornness by breaking all of his fingers. Three years later, Hindu radicals beat him and dragged him to the police station where he spent a week in jail. And the scars on Jatya's left arm and hand are constant reminders of the third time he was persecuted for his faith 
when a Hindu neighbor whipped him with a bicycle chain, causing severe lacerations. After each brutal beating, however, Jatya returns home from the hospital, grabs his Bible, and heads back into his village. After all, people still need Christ. Until my last breath, he said, I want to serve and live my life for Jesus. Born into a lower caste Hindu family, Jatya worked as a slave laborer for several decades. He came to know Jesus in his early 30s after receiving a gospel tract and found true freedom in God's love. He and his He and two of his nine children co-pastor a church of 40 people who meet in a small room attached to the side of his house. When not with his church, Jatya is in his village praying with Hindus, handing out gospel tracts and telling them that Jesus died for them. He considers the persecution he has endured throughout the years to be an expected part of his work as an evangelist, and no amount of persecution could persuade him to renounce his faith in Christ. I have left many lesser things, he said. I can't leave this now. I have full faith. Everything that I do is in Christ. Oh, wow, that we would have such clarity and purpose, that everything would be that we do would have Christ in mind. That we would see the things that we've lost simply as lesser things that don't compare with what we gain as witnesses for Jesus. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus has prepared his disciples for a similar reality as he will be leaving soon and they will be his witnesses to the world. In doing so, Jesus assures them that they will have a helper. They will have the Holy Spirit and that they will face some very difficult circumstances. And the reason Jesus is so blunt in describing their coming persecution is stated in verse 1. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Having right expectations will keep them from falling away. And we need to hear these words because if we don't see that these kinds of hateful reactions to the gospel, if we don't see that they are normal and to be expected, if we expect to be simply liked and just assume that we'll always have our freedom of worship, then if things change, and God only knows, if things change and we begin to experience what Jesus says is normal, we may be in danger of becoming disillusioned and, Jesus' concern, falling away. The blessings that we have are not normal. And we need to recognize this. We need to be, yes, very, very grateful and give thanks to God for our unusual circumstances as Christians. The worst thing that could happen to us is not persecution. The worst thing that could happen to us is that we fall away. 
And Jesus tells the truth to his disciples so they are not caught off guard. So they don't have wrong expectations and abandon the faith. God is sovereign. And we've been blessed with lots of comforts. And maybe they will continue well past our lifetime. Or maybe they won't. But either way, the comforts aren't the goal of our faith. We need to hear the words of Jesus and realize that persecution is the norm. And that we cannot conflate our faith with our American comforts. Our American comforts are an unusual blessing. They are not the inevitable results of the Christian faith. And we need to remember this because the infinitely worst scenario would be, would be our angry fists at God toward the sky as we fall away from a faith that wasn't really real in the first place. Jesus loves his own and he doesn't want these first disciples to be shocked and fall away. And the record of history confirms their persecution. And that Jesus gave them what they needed to to remain faithful. Looking back over the spread of the gospel during the first two centuries of, of bloody persecution, the early Christian writer Tertullian famously stated that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he also said to his Roman opponents, We are but of yesterday. And we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. And that's amazing how this small, unimpressive group of disciples who were met with persecution would not fall away, but instead would grow and fill eventually every acceptable place in society. Just as Jesus predicted, they would bear witness of him to the world because the Holy Spirit empowered them to do so. But in the moment when Jesus said these words, they were just small and unimpressive. They were probably confused and sad at the thought of Jesus leaving them. And they were probably fearful or shocked, bracing themselves for the future as Jesus also promised that they'd experience hatred and persecution. Don't you love the honesty of our faith? An honesty that not only describes the spiritual blessings, but also the worldly troubles associated with it. A sovereignty that perfectly knows the future and equips disciples, Jesus equips them and us to be witnesses, witnesses about him. Do you know what the the Greek word for witness is? Interestingly, it's martyr. Our English word that describes someone dying for their faith is the Greek word for witness. Not that our witness will necessarily lead to being killed, 
But our conviction as witnesses of Jesus and his gospel ought to be like those first disciples. And many throughout church history thinking that what we have, our faith, is worth our very lives. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And Jesus teaches the necessity of the Holy Spirit, for he is our helper. He is the spirit of truth. And there is a Trinitarian weight to our witness as well because Jesus the Son sends the Holy Spirit to us proceeding from the Father. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus says that the Spirit will bear witness about him and that these first disciples will also bear witness. And this is a, this is a unique witness that we're reading about here. One that is different from ours because Jesus says their witness has to do with them being with him from the beginning. That's what our text says. Because you were with me from the beginning. We are to be witnesses to Jesus, but our witness is not because we were with him from the beginning. We are not eyewitnesses. But because of their witness, because the Holy Spirit spoke through them in writing the New Testament concerning what they saw and heard and touched, we follow their witness. The foundation has been laid. We weren't with Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry. We didn't walk with him and hear him with our own ears, his teachings and claims concerning himself. We didn't witness with our own eyes the many miracles that he performed. Jesus, think of Jesus, though, he did provide for himself firsthand testimony in these disciples, eyewitnesses who lived with him for three years. So the things that we read in our New Testament are not hearsay. What we have is a true record of men who were present. And they obviously told the truth because this small, unimpressive group was so convinced by what they witnessed firsthand that they willingly and even joyfully subjected themselves to hatred and persecution and horrible deaths. Jesus said, because you have been with me from the beginning, you, these original disciples, will bear witness. And John, we see it evidenced throughout the New Testament. John in his first epistle, how does he begin? He begins by pointing out his witness, saying, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And he adds, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Likewise, Peter wrote, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And not only were these apostles with Jesus from the beginning, but the Holy Spirit is said to be a witness. He shares this eyewitness status. As the angel tells the Virgin Mary that at the very moment of conception, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. At Jesus' baptism, which was the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit descended upon him to equip him. Jesus' first sermon begins with the words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In light of this, Sinclair Ferguson comments, the Spirit is ideally suited to be the chief witness for Christ because he was the intimate companion of Jesus throughout his ministry. The Holy Spirit was with him from the beginning. And we must remember this unique witness of the apostles. We must remember that. It is unique. I say unique because some today give themselves the title apostle. Yes, apostle can just mean sent one or messenger. But what we mean by apostle within this context is much more than that. These were not, these who claim this today were not with Jesus at the beginning. They were not eyewitnesses to his resurrection. An apostle is a role, an office that is unrepeatable. They are the foundation of the church established by Jesus. And I don't know, you know, I'm not a builder, but I think I know that you don't lay a foundation upon a foundation. You build a structure on a foundation, and that structure is the church. Our witness as the church is built upon the foundational witness of the apostles. It's the apostles who were divinely inspired to write the New Testament, uniquely equipped by the Spirit to give this foundational testimony that witnessed Christ's many miracles. This is why I cringe when someone says, I have a word of prophecy from the Lord. No, you don't, unless you're reading it. Acts 4.33 tells us that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they were eyewitnesses. Apostles are unique in that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not modern, there are no modern day apostles. And any claim to this does not rightly understand, does not rightly appreciate this unique witness given to them by Jesus. It doesn't rightly appreciate the authority of God's word recorded and recognized by them. They witnessed Jesus firsthand. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and revealing God's word to us, we too are called to go and make disciples, witnessing the truth of his gospel to others. That's our role. And what is the truth of our witness? A true Christian witness is always a witness to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit shines the light on Jesus. 
He bears witness concerning Jesus. A spirit-filled worship service will sing, sing of Jesus and preach of Jesus and commune with Christ. The apostles were qualified as witnesses because of what they saw and heard concerning Jesus. And our witness, our witness today, it's not about some gimmick to get rich or be healed. It's not about speaking in tongues or some extra biblical vision or word of prophecy. It's not a program. It's not about a return to some moral majority. Our witness is not simply a lifestyle, an experience, or the news. Our witness is about the biblical testimony of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, his divinity, his glory, his humble sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. This is our witness. This is the reason that John wrote his gospel saying, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our witness is not about human success or the American dream. It's not about some generic faith that causes people to be amazed with us and our character and our strength. No, our witness is led by the Spirit and follows an apostolic witness. It's about Jesus. It's a witness to him. And a witness to Jesus is not summed up by asking, what would Jesus do? No, Jesus came to save the lost. He came as God the Son who took on flesh and became a willing sacrifice, taking our place, paying our penalty, so that by believing in him we may have everlasting life. Since our witness is about Jesus, it should also resemble his mercy to lost sinners. And when Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, it's in the context of a world that hated and rejected him and was on the verge of publicly shaming him and unjustly murdering him. A.W. Uh, Pink wrote, Marvelous grace was this. Neither hostility nor hatred had quenched the compassion of Christ. The world might cast him out, yet still would his mercy linger over it. So in light of his great mercy, in light of the merciful witness of these apostles, our witness must likewise resemble the mercy of Christ for lost sinners. So yes, there is a, a unique testimony of the original disciples as Jesus' apostles, but this isn't to say that we don't have a testimony of our own and that the Holy Spirit doesn't continue to witness today through us. William Hendrickson writes, whenever a true servant of God bears witness against the world, this witness is the work of the Spirit. Whenever a simple believer by word and example draws others to Christ, this too is the work of the Spirit. But let's have our eyes wide open. 
Jesus prepared these disciples for great pressures to come. He says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. And the seriousness of this, I think we, we might miss today. This shouldn't be a surprise to them that Jesus just said this, because we just read a few chapters earlier, remember? John 9, what happened to the man who was born blind that Jesus healed? The Pharisees excommunicated him because he, because he gave glory to Jesus, said he must be from God. So they understood that this was how the Jews, Jewish leaders were behaving and what they would do and that this would likewise be their fate as well. Being put out of the synagogue was a terrible thing. It communicated the fearful state of being alienated from God. Heresy and unrepentant rebellion should lead to the right accountability of church discipline. Done in love with the hope that a person repents and comes back to God. So there is a right and godly practice of excommunication. A goal in mind. But what Jesus warns about here is a hateful abuse of power for the sake of persecution. And it comes from the Jews. Most persecution throughout church history comes from religions. This first century church, we think of Rome and yes, they were involved at some point, but primarily, initially, it was the Jew, Jewish leaders. It was the Jews that were persecuting the church. This early persecution of the church had to do with Jews rejecting Christianity, banning them from the synagogues, which was the central point. That It was central to not only their worship, but to life. And society, a person cast out of the synagogue in that day couldn't get a job. Or if they had a business, they'd lose all their customers. Being excommunicated meant being cut off from family and church and nation. And we don't appreciate how terrible this was because today we can always find some church that doesn't care about church discipline. And unlike that day... We all have Bibles. We all can read God's word on our own without a church, but not then. In the first century, this was huge. The Jews ultimately excommunicated all the Christians, keeping them from the synagogue prayers, intending this burden to lead to a, a doubt of the apostles' teachings. Jesus goes on to say, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And we see that, don't we? Reading through Acts. Again, the persecution, it's a religious persecution. And we see it fulfilled in the stoning of Stephen in Acts. We see it in Paul's own life as Saul prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road. Paul thinking that his persecution of Christians was in the name of God, but Jesus says these men are deceived, thinking they're zealous for God, when in reality, they will do these things because they have not known the Father 
nor me. Paul was a living testimony to these words. And yet Jesus had mercy on him, blinding him physically for a time, but opening his spiritual eyes to the fact that he was not only not serving God, but in reality he had been persecuting the Lord himself because he is with his church. The love of Jesus preparing, warning his disciples that an hour is coming. He says, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember, you may remember that I told you, told them to you. Jesus sovereignly allows an hour, a time for his persecutors. And the book of Acts shows us that the disciples, they were prepared. They did remember the words of Jesus. When the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John to stop preaching about Jesus, they, filled with the Spirit, refused. They refused to be quiet. When they were beaten for their witness, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. When they prayed in Acts 4 concerning this persecution, they didn't pray for the beatings to end. It wasn't for prayers for protection. It was a prayer of confidence in the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It was a prayer that exulted in his sovereign plan that predestined Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews to do what he planned to take place. And again, instead of asking for relief, for the suffering to stop, they apparently remember Jesus' words concerning this hour, and here's what they asked. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, make us bold. Lord, give us strength to keep doing what is our highest purpose and joy, knowing that it will get us beat up and thrown into prison. This is the reality that continues to our day. The testimony of those who have gone before us, it's one of of joy and purpose. Listen to this letter. It was written by five men who were imprisoned for their faith, writing to John Calvin back in 1553. They wrote, We want you to know that although our body is confined here between four walls, Yet our spirit has never been so free and so comforted and has never previously contemplated so fully and so vividly as now the great heavenly riches and treasures. and The truth of the promises which God has made to his children. So much so that we seem not only to believe and hope in them, but even to see them with our own eyes and touch them with our hands. So great. So remarkable is the assistance of our God in our bonds and imprisonment. 
So far, indeed, are we from wishing to regard our affliction as a curse of God, as the world and the flesh wish to regard it, that we regard it rather as the greatest blessing that has ever come upon us. For in it, we are made true children of God, brothers and companions of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and are conformed to his image. Wow. On May 16th, 1553, these men were taken out and burned at the stake. Who knows? Who knows what our future holds? Well, God knows. And the very words of Jesus apply to us as well. And, and he says them to keep us from falling away. So may our prayer be more like these examples. Not focused on relief or a return to comforts, but for boldness and strength. For a faith like these men who regarded their suffering as their greatest blessing. Apparently this is Jatya's prayer as well. His story goes on. Jatya's eighth brush with persecution was prompted by a recent discussion with a young man in his community. Days after Jatya shared Jesus with the young man, a mob of Hindu nationalists surrounded Jatya and beat him until he lost consciousness. He suffered bruises on his face and a broken rib. It is common throughout India for multiple paid RSS informants to live in each village. And apparently an informant had seen Jatya witnessing to the young man. As in Jatya's case, the informant's report Christian evangelism to authorities, or they sometimes take matters into their own hands and beat the evangelists themselves. Jatya said the young man he witnessed to is now a Christian, though he keeps his faith a secret for fear of attack by the RSS. Despite their mistreatment and apparent hatred of him, Jatya has only love for the RSS members. He prays that he will be able to meet each of them one day so he can tell them how he has been able to forgive them. God has forgiven us on the cross. He has told us to forgive, he said. So I forgive them. In 2017, despite his history of persecution, Jatya is pain-free. Although he still has many scars, he said he is grateful for the physical evidence of his faithfulness. When asked if he fears being persecuted a ninth time at his advanced age, he answered with Scripture. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Echoing John 16.33, he continued, We will face all kinds of trouble in the world, but God has overcome the world. We don't have to worry. Jatya asks us to pray that his church will continue, even after his death, to be a light in his village of roughly 10,000 Hindus. He also requests prayers for his sons as they lead the church and for the salvation of everyone in the village. 
For now, Jatya knows his work must continue until his last breath. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for Jatya, that his church will continue after him, that you will strengthen his sons to lead, that you will use them for the salvation of many. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us and use us as your witnesses to our community. Strengthen us so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses mere knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Strengthen us as you have strengthened our brothers and sisters throughout the ages. Strengthen us so that we may be witnesses for you, prepared and kept from falling away. Father, we thank you for our helper, the Holy Spirit, at work within us. May Christ be glorified in your church throughout all generations, forever and ever, we pray. Amen.